Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and it's a delight to have you here today. This podcast, I try to explore the intersections of yin yoga, an embodied form of yoga practice that is very slow and contemplative. I try to integrate uh, the themes of Buddhist meditation and some elements of, of energy work from Qigong and Chinese medicine. And in integrating all these, I'm trying to explore a what I'm trying to refer to as a full spectrum spirituality, where we open to the, the totality of our lives in everyday circumstances and and in doing so, reveal the sublime, we reveal the, the numinous within um, the ordinary. And now in today's episode, I share with you a talk I gave, which is some reflections around the, 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 the topic of karma, particularly in Buddhist contemplative practice. Um, and karma can mean many things in different contexts, so I try to really spell that out specifically, what I mean by the term. But from a kind of theoretical overview of karma, uh, I then try to share how mindfulness of breathing, just bringing uh, our attention to our breath and, and working with our breath um, in meditation, is a way to explore a karmic dynamic in our, our lived experience. So we can have a firsthand, direct experiential taste of the workings of karma in our own being. And as I try to say, from there, when you get a feel for it in your body and with the breath and your attention, uh, when you get a feel for this karmic dynamic, you start to see it uh, more readily in other circumstances. You start to see how the, the dynamic of cause and effect, how nothing exists in independence, everything arises due to certain causes and conditions, you start to see that more broadly in the world around you. And... Um, in terms of the Buddhist piece around this, I would say the emphasis on karma allows the practitioner to really start to see the karmic effect or the karmic outcome of their intentions and actions. And, and that's what uh, one way of looking at the path, that's one way of describing what the path is all about. It's about refining perception to really see into the karmic uh, em emphasis or the karmic influence of intention and action. Uh, or as Tanisaro Bhikkhu says, and this is a quote I have in the talk, quote, Buddhists, however, saw that karma acts in feedback loops, with the present moment being shaped both by the past and by present actions. Present actions shape not only the future, but also the present. This constant opening for present input into the causal process makes free will possible. So that's just, this can be a, a kind of a heady topic, and uh, that's why in the talk I try to pivot in the middle from the theory around karma to the actual exploration of karma in our lived experience vis-a-vis -vis the, the portal of mindfulness of breathing. So I hope you enjoy today's talk, and before I give it to you, I just want to say and notify you this is the last call for the Winter's Day of Yin Retreat that Terry and I will be teaching on December 11th. So this is a day-long online retreat intensive, um, which sounds onerous, but really it's a wonderful day to dip into the beautiful practices, the very relaxed, mellow, low-key practices of yin yoga, qigong, and sitting meditation. So Terry and I teach a full day of these three practices together 
so that, in a way, you can see the karmic influence of what it's like to practice with these three practices uh, integrated together in a synergistic way. Our contention is that um, these practices are, are, are made more powerful, they're made more resonant by their uh, integration with each other. So if you're interested in any of these practices, uh, yin yoga, a very contemplative, embodied, slow, accessible form of yoga for anybody, check this out. If you're interested in seeing how yin yoga and qigong and meditation all work together, check out this uh, retreat day. Um, there's a link for you in the show notes, and you can go to joshsummers.net forward slash events to register. So that's going to be on December 11th, and if you can't make the live session, not to worry, these, uh, these sessions will be recorded, and you will have full access uh, to these recordings with your registration. So whether you're live or just going at your own pace with the retreat, we look forward to practicing with you on December 11th. And to that end, too, Terry and I lead a ongoing uh, weekly practice community, which we call the Riverbird Sangha. This is a online community of people that practice uh, meditation, yin yoga, qigong, and yang yoga with us. We offer four classes a week. People come to those classes live over Zoom, or they attend those classes in recording format in our on archived library. So um, if you'd like to, to have more continuity in your practice, if you'd like to feel more of a sense of communal support in your ongoing practice, we are trying to establish that and support you with that. So uh, please avail yourself if you're interested. And your registration in the Sangha, it goes a long way to support the work I do on the podcast. Registrations or memberships to our Sangha begin at $5 a month. Uh, so that's just over a cup of coffee once a month to support the content of this podcast as well as uh, the teaching that Terry and I offer each week, sharing meditation, yin yoga, qigong, and yang yoga. We look forward to practicing with you, and without further ado, I now give you today's talk, The Karma of Breathing. As I reflected on uh, last week's theme, uh, which was a theme of gratitude for uh, the idea of good karma, um, particularly the example I gave of seeing the influence of, of, of good benefactors or people in my life that have really um, positively influenced me and, and just appreciating that and, and starting to see that how that um, their influence uh, was received by me and then developed in, in my own life as a response to their, um, their good inspiration and, and good energy. And tonight I'd like to kind of continue on with this theme of looking into what I think the Buddha was referring to with the idea of karma, um, because it really is, uh, depending on how you look at it, the idea, the, the concept of karma is central to the Buddha's understanding around what um, leads to freedom, an inner freedom, what leads to an inner peace, what leads to an inner well-being. Um, and one way to, one reason for bringing this in, um, this, this reflection on karma is that I hope after I talk about it a little bit, that you'll see that there's more to meditation 
than just getting into the present moment. There's more to meditation and, and, and contemplative path than being in the present and being aware of what's happening moment by moment. Yes, there are many practices that have, that have derived from Buddhist uh, methodology that sound like that. Get into the present moment, anchor yourself in the present, be aware of what's occurring, let go of the past, don't get lost in the future, stay focused. And the, 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 the kind of the operative assumption with that sort of emphasis is that if you just get into the present moment, everything should be okay. You know, that you've, you've unburdened yourself from the, the, the weight of the past, you've unburdened yourself from the weight of the future, and that somehow everything in the present should be shiny, bright, wonderful and lovely and painless in a way. And of course, that it just isn't so. We can be in the present and um, really experience the enduring legacy of things in our life or in our history or a collective history. There can be all manner of illness that we wake up to that we encounter in the present. So there's, there's nothing intrinsically redemptive about the present moment, except for the fact that we can wake up to the kind of the, the, the operating dynamic of karma. And in getting hip to karma, getting really learning to understand karma more closely and experientially, we um, can start to find a way out of the ensnaring uh, habit patterns of bad karma. So to contextualize this, um, I wanted to share a couple of vignettes or a couple sort of illustrations or reflections. And the first is very ordinary. Um, yesterday, towards the end of the holiday weekend, Terry's youngest son had one of his friends over for dinner to join us. And when he arrived, he, you know, he sometimes likes to sit down by the fire next to me and just catch up a little bit before he goes and hangs out with Terry's son. Um, and so we got to chit-chatting in front of the fire and just talking about the weekend. And I sort of said, hey, you know, we exchanged pleasantries. And um, after a little bit of time, I said, hey, did you notice anything about the house? Have you noticed anything? And he sort of looked around a little bit. Yeah, there's, there's decorations up. You got your, you got your holiday decorations up. And I said, well, I didn't, but Terry did. And it's true. We've been, I've been witnessing Terry kind of uh, decorate the house and, and bring a real festive energy into our living space. And it's really, really, really sweet. Um, but I, um, aside from that, I, I looked back behind my head and I said, notice that string of lights behind me. Do you notice anything unusual about that? And the, the, the son's friend looked at, looked at the lights and he said, you know, I don't really see. What are, you, what, are, what are you pointing out? I said, well, notice where the string of lights starts. And there was one, the string of lights that I'm referring to is about, I'm terrible with, with spatial uh, estimates, but it's roughly 20 to 40 feet long, long string of lights. And it starts at one corner of a window and then goes around one corner of the room, crosses the entranceway to the room, goes up and around, <clears throat> sort of circumnavigates the the perimeter of the cabinetry in the kitchen, and then goes around on top of the refrigerator and drapes down by the side of uh, a corner of the wall to come to the plug that plugs it in. 
And so I pointed all that out to this kid and he, he really wasn't still wowed by anything. And you're probably wondering, what is Josh leading to? Where is he going with this? Well, the, the point that I want to make about this is, and I said to, to the friend, I said, notice how that the plug of the light cord is, it lands perfectly at level with the socket. There, you know, there, there isn't an inch or two, there isn't even an inch or two of wiggle room. It, it just lands perfectly in the socket. And he said, oh yeah, you're right. I didn't notice that. And I said, but now what makes that amazing is that Terry did not measure. She did not uh, sort of lay it out and, and line it up and eyeball it. She just had the, the string of lights on the floor, looked around, and, and essentially, you know, strung it up. And it the, the, the plug just perfectly landed in the socket. It's like a hole-in-one or a, a three-point shot that doesn't even hit the rim. It was just a perfect landing. And as I spoke to the friend about this, I said, you know, this is this is really a, a talent. This is a skill, something that I have do not have. And I and I, I want to be clear that Terry has many skills, many talents outside of just stringing Christmas tree lights up. So this is not some kind of loosely veiled misogynistic observation about how good the uh, of a of a decorator uh, Terry is. It's just an appreciation of skill and particularly the result of that skill that um, I've been, uh, since we've been living together, I've noticed that her design of decoration really facilitates in kind of the way the Chinese described it, uh, uh, facilitates a good energy flow. It's very palpable. And I think, um, I can't be for sure here, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that ability that she has stems from the sensitivity and refinement of uh, awareness that she develops with qigong and meditation and in yin yoga too that there's a way that she's she's very attuned to cause and effect um, in terms of what she does where something gets placed how she moves her body and this is what we teach in, in our practice but how that affects uh, the environment or herself so i was thinking about that this this kind of this real skill of, of, of acting in a way that supports good results. And as I was thinking about it, I remembered some of my learning when I was in acupuncture school. So this is almost, this is roughly, it is 20 years ago when I was in, in graduate school for acupuncture. And one of the very challenging skill sets that an acupuncturist learns is how to diagnose what someone kind of diagnose the pattern of what someone has in terms of their, their energetic disharmony, but to diagnose that through feeling the radial pulse. So there's a, the, the radial artery comes down the, the forearm to the thumb side of, of, of the, of the wrist crease. And the, the, the acupuncturist will place three fingers, the index finger, middle finger, and, and th ring finger along the radial pulse. And the acupuncturist gets trained to feel certain qualities in the pulse that are diagnostically significant. Now, you know, 
I felt like I was doing well when I could put my hands, my fingers on the, on the pulse and just confirm that the person had a pulse. (laughs) Okay. I'm doing pretty well there, but I saw skilled master level acupuncturists place their hands on both radial radial pulses and then start to describe within a few minutes, they could describe sort of health occurrence health events that happened years ago. They could say, tell somebody that when they broke their ankle in third grade, they could tell them about the, the strep infections that they got when they were a kid. They could describe broad health patterns that health health struggles that the person uh, wrestled with. They could even go so far as to make accurate guesses around what the person ate the night before. There was sort of a joke that one one acupuncturist in the school in particular could could tell pretty quick, obviously if someone had eaten ice cream the night before their session or not. Now my point is by bringing this up and tying this to what kind of the, 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 the decorative magic that I witnessed from Terry over the weekend is that to the untrained sensibility, to the untrained eye, these feats can seem magical. But when someone has engaged with training in these disciplines, the magical starts to be decoded in a way, and revealed as a skill, something that can be trained. Now, with acupuncture, I never got much better than kind of fair to average pulse reading. Like I could get the general sense of the quality of the pulse and what that might indicate. So I had always had to use other other information to um, validate what I was feeling in the pulse or corroborate what I was feeling. But it became, it was obvious to me that with practice and in confirming with the patient or the, or the recipient of the acupuncture or uh, having a mentor nearby to feel the pulse after I felt it, slowly but surely after three or four years of training, my pulse skills, my pulse reading skills got better. You know, they got better. They weren't perfect by any means, but they got better. And <clears throat> I would like to frame one way of thinking about Dharma practice, what we're doing here as developing good skills, both skills of of perception, skills of intention, skills of sensitivity that allow us to train ourselves in exercises that refine those skills that I just mentioned and help us produce and shape our experience to be one of greater clarity, poise, compassion, and less reactivity, less judgment, less harshness, less struggle. And the key to that, the key to this learning, I think, is coming to appreciate the dynamic of karma in our experience. Now, I, um, I know I brought up the idea of karma last week, and I said a few things about it, one being that there tends to be a popularized conception that um, kind of sees karma as 
a, a, a linear process where what's happening now, the, 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 the present moment experience is the result of a specific action in the past. So the, the example I gave is if you get a parking ticket, there tends to be this idea that, well, I, the parking ticket is, hap- is happening now because of some bad action I took in the past. So there's one action in the past that leads to the, the current event or experience that you're having. Um, and then I, I found a, a passage from one of my teachers named Tanisaro Biku. He's a um, contemporary monk. And um, he, he fleshes this, this simplistic notion of karma out a little bit. So I want to kind of say, well, this is what karma isn't, but it's what many people think it is. And he says, for most people, karma tends to function like fate. It's an idea like fate and, and bad fate at that. Karma tends to be seen as an inexplicable, unchangeable force coming out of our past for which we are somehow vaguely responsible and powerless to fight. And this is actually a very, very old concept. This goes back to the, the, the cultural milieu that the Buddha emerged from in, in India. This, this kind of deterministic, fate-like dynamic of karma. But Tanisaro says this kind of karma sounds like callous myth-making. This sounds like callous myth-making that can justify almost any kind of suffering or injustice in the status quo. Because if you see karma as linear of one action causing one result, then if someone is poor, for this is the example that Tanisaro gave, he said, if someone's poor, it's because it's his karma. Or if someone gets raped, it's because of their karma. These are the two examples he gave. And then he says, from this, it seems a short step to saying that he or she deserves to suffer because it's their karma. And so doesn't deserve our help. So I, I wanted to mention that and um, and bring that into the conversation. And I, that particular piece around um, the, the way karma leads to engagement, like an understanding of karma leads to maybe more skillful or uh, broader depth of engagement with our actions in the world. I wanted to mention that because there really is a revolutionary dimension to this teaching. And uh, the Buddha himself was, as some of you know, was 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 very much a revolutionary in, in terms of um, offering a, a an, an alternative to the very rigid stratification of society of the of the of the ancient caste system that was the cultural milieu that he emerged in that he grew up in, where people were born into a, a specific uh, hierarchy and. Your, your, your station in that hierarchy was determined, quote-unquote, by your karma, this fate-like karma. And there's nothing you could do to escape that. He came along and said, no, 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 no. That's, that's, that's kind of, um, that's, he wouldn't say this, but what I would say, that's Mickey Mouse karma. That from his perspective, your measure as a, of, of your character was defined by the actions 
that you take in your life. And those actions are defined or driven by your intentions. So there's nothing rigid about you know, the, the, the nature of self in, in the Buddhist sense of, in terms of being slotted into a specific hierarchy. It's, it's, much, it's much more fluid uh, sense of this, the, 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 the individual is not a, a fixed uh, intrinsic way one way or another, but it's a, it's a, the individual is a set of causes and conditions that um, is flowing and changing and developing. So in contrast to this kind of linear notion of karma, Tanisiru says Buddhists, however, saw that karma acts in a feedback loop. Karma acts in a feedback loop. And I'll try to explain that a little bit as we get into the, the, the practice. But the, what he means here is, is the feedback loop is where the present moment is shaped by the past so just pause there for a moment. You can see that your, your present moment experience is shaped by the past. But the key thing about the Buddhist conception of karma is that the present moment isn't just shaped exclusively by the past. It's also shaped by present actions. So we, if you think about it, we can be aware of how we are right now. We can, and then we can, review and imagine all the, the, the past, the matrix of past actions from innumerable sources that are ripening right now to give us our unique experience. That gets into like all the, as I tried to say in the yoga class last week, all the, the, the industry of production that create material or material aspects of our culture. It gets into the, the, the development of ideas and language and, and, and um, philosophy and, 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 and all the nature of, of cultural knowledge that we have and how that influences our understanding of ourselves. So there's all these past actions, past causes that we are the recipient of, but there's also the very vital input that we bring to the present that itself conditions how we experience the present. This, this is, this is the, the, the key point in the, in the teaching. The present actions shape not only the future. This is Tanisaru again. Present actions shape not only the future, but also the present. This constant opening, he says, this constant opening for present input into the causal process makes free will possible. So this, the present moment, again, isn't that it's, we, we come to the present and there's emphasis on present momentness in, in all sorts of, of spiritual traditions, not because the present moment is going to be a, a, a bouquet of flowers per se. But the present moment, when we're awake to it, is the, the aspect of our experience whereby we can see the results of the actions we're bringing to the present. And when we're present to those actions, 
we can start to directly perceive how our present actions condition our experience, how they shape our experience and how they produce future successive moments into the future. So I know that can sound a little maybe abstract, but I do want to frame meditation practice and start to talk about it this way, but I want to frame meditation practice as, as a kind of karma lab, a laboratory to study karma. So I made a few notes on this. In general, one way of thinking about this is A, I have been saying, and and I'm indebted to my teachers who have drilled this into my head, but this practice is not a practice of escapism. It's not a practice of transcendence. It's not a practice of getting into some super duper optimal bliss state and hanging out there for the rest of your life. This is a practice that opens us to what's happening and offers a training in understanding. So that's one dimension of the path is understanding or wisdom. And the thing we're understanding is that the karmic mechanisms in our experience. So karma is deeply entwined with what the Buddhist, what the Buddhist world refers to as wisdom. It's understanding causes their effects and in a way refining those causes till there's less and less suffering both in our life and in the world. And that is motivated, that wisdom is motivated by compassion. So, and that, and that's the heart quality that really, um, I would say fuels the, 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 the understanding that there's a deep caring for ourselves and ultimately for others to to understand these mechanisms of how our minds create unnecessary dukkha, unnecessary suffering, and how the, our minds free ourselves from it. So in, in, if you think about meditation now as a karma lab, over the weekend, um, Terry and I were walking together, and I at one point I get some, some insights about the Dharma or practice while we're walking. And I, and I, I said to her, I said, you know, in some ways, what we're teaching in the Sangha are three interrelated practices of going nowhere. There's three simple practices of going nowhere. Sitting meditation, there's, there's nowhere to go other than here. Yin yoga, you're in a pose, there's nowhere to go other than in the pose. Qigong, it's very simple movement patterns. You're not going anywhere, you're just circulating. So this, this, this idea of the simplicity of going nowhere is intentional because in going nowhere, we allow, we, we create the conditions for a kind of spiritual pilgrimage. And when we think of pilgrimages, we might often think about long treks or walks or traveling a great journey and visiting holy sites. But the contemplative spiritual pilgrimage begins with the recognition and it's really a presumption to start, and then it gets validated, but it begins with the presumption that that real peace, real well-being is never 
found externally. It's only found within your own heart. And so the simplicity, these three practices that we're sharing of doing going nowhere, um, in a sense, compassionately close the exits, exit doors of looking out so that we can look internally and likely with the, that the beginning is, and as I've tried to share over many weeks, the beginning may be an encounter with the, the, the pain in the heart. For many, that's what, it be, what begins the path. And I would say you know, awakening, the first phase of awakening is awake, awakening to pain. Awakening to dukkha. <clears throat> but with practice and with the help of the Dharma, the teachings and reflections and discussion, we start to gather tools that help us look into our heart, see what's there, and bring the conflicts of our heart, or I should say, I like the word transform. We transform the conflicts of the heart through compassion and wisdom. We don't necessarily get rid of things. We don't uproot things. We don't throw things out the window. But the pains, the tax of pain in the heart um, are slowly transformed. So, in a way, when I talk about karma as uh, using the Buddhist sense of the word karma as action and the results of action, when we sit, the first thing we encounter is, is you could say, the way we are. When we sit down, we're always, in, we're always encountering the way we are. So that's what's ripening now. That's what's coming to, to fruition right now, the way we are. And from there, we can start to see what kinds of intentions condition the way we are. So um, I'm going to change the meditation instructions a little bit tonight, but for weeks and months and over a year now, there's been different instructions given, but they're all predicated on the intentions of being gentle, kind, tolerant, interested towards your experience as you are, towards the way you are, the way, the way, way you are like right now, the way it is for you. Just to be gentle to that direct expression of your life. And from there, there may be ways that you start to see that, oh, just acting on the intention of being gentle to this physical pain, to this emotional pain, to this uh, injustice, to be tolerant towards it. Those intentions are there to help steady your ability to look into the dynamic, to not feel quite as overwhelmed by it, to not feel as, as hooked within the, the, um, the reactive 
energy around it, but to be with it in a way that you can start to see how it functions, how it comes and goes, how it uh, leads to other thoughts, etc. And so in so far, just working that way, just you could say there's a karmic implication that you may have already and hopefully already started to appreciate between the difference between being lost in thought or lost in a emotional, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a neutral term for this, but you know, an emotional state. The difference between being lost in it and being aware that it's occurring. Like, and then these are the two primary modes of the mind that I've been referring to in meditation, where you can sometimes feel like you're lost in thought, you get swept away in, in a, a daydream or a wandering. Or, um, you know, I don't have any, I don't want to put too much negative terminology to that experience because it's, it's, it's not a problem, in my opinion. It's what the mind does. But in being tolerant towards the wandering mind and being awake and aware of what it's like when, you, when the mind becomes aware that it's happening again, like the, you're, you're conscious that you're here, you're awake that you're here. The difference between being lost and being awake to something has a karmic result. You could say when you're lost in something, your ability to navigate it is largely offline. You're the, 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 the matrix of previous programming is just running its course. But the moment you wake up to it, you can see the thoughts, you can see the feelings, you can see the sensations. The moment you wake up to it, there's a, a new position that you have whereby you can choose. You can start to choose what you do with it. And that's, that's part and parcel of the practices that there's great emphasis we try to give here on choosing how you respond to what's current. Do you go stay with it? Do you put it aside? Do you go back to the perch? Do you go somewhere else? So that the element of choice in the instruction, and you could say the idea of playing the edge with the experience as we talk about in the yoga and sometimes in the meditation, but all of that, the choices, the playing the edge are important so that not only do you take responsibility for your own practice, but you start to taste directly the consequences of your decisions. And not in some sort of ledger of like, well, Josh said it should be, you should do this and you shouldn't make those decisions. And, and this is the right kind of decision. I'm not saying any of that. You've, you're free to choose. And all I'm saying is just, Pay attention to what it's like when you make those choices. Now, tonight, I'm going to have to hustle to get this in. <laughs> but the, the good news is that the, the instructions I'm giving are things that I've been talking about in the yin yoga class for a while now. But tonight, what I want to add in is some it's kind of a next level of instruction for the meditation. And put the instructions that I'll be giving in terms of sensitivity to karma in your experience. So 
tonight I'm going to introduce being with the breath. And this is something that I, I if you've worked with me for a while, you know, I, I tend to hold, like not bring the breath in for a while. Like I really like people to get really comfortable just relaxing and being gentle with themselves and exercising choices for what they do before I drop in the breath. Because uh, the tendency is when, when if I found that when people go to the breath too quickly in their practice, they quickly make it into a um, either a success or a failure type experience. Success when you stay with the breath, you're an abject failure when you lose the breath or can't stay with it. And, and that kind of binary thinking around breathing can be, can be unhelpful or unskillful. So the foundation of relaxation is, is, is always going to be there. Uh, but um, the way you can start playing with the exploration of karma in your, in your lived practice is to use the breath, use the breath as, a, as a tool in this investigation. So the, the basic instruction will be that as we come to the meditation, I'll guide you just to feel the body for a little bit, just to feel your body as you are. And then within the, the felt sense of your body, there will be a pattern of experience that is correlated with the energy breath coming in and going out. And, and the recommendation will be to just breathe comfortably. Um, but once you sense how you're feeling the energy breath coming in and flowing out of the body, the, 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 the aspect of the instruction that will make this an exercise in, in our karma lab is the key instruction, breathe in a way that feels really comfortable. Now, only you are going to know if you're comfortable. So I can't say breathe in for five seconds, breathe out for four or whatever. I can't say any of that. All I can say is that the intention is to support comfort in your body and comfort in your mind. But how you do that is something you'll have to adapt the way you breathe around. You'll have to be flexible with how you breathe and adjust it. So that moment by moment, there's a development or a sense of comfort, refreshment, ease coming into your being. And if you've been taking yin yoga with me, you know, this is how I've been teaching a lot of the, the breath practice in that, in, that, in that form. And we're just bringing that into our sitting practice now. So really the way I'm describing or suggesting you work with the breath is to, in this sense, to use the breath like a new perch or an updated perch that you could just let your hands rest, your awareness rest on your hands. That could be a perch, but I'm going to suggest that tonight when we practice, you let this sense of the, the body breathing comfortably be your perch. And then whenever your mind is drawn into something else, and primarily these will be sounds, thoughts, or other physical sensations. So whenever you, you find your mind pulled into exploring something else, I 
the suggestion I want to use tonight or recommend tonight is to use the labeling technique that Terry and I uh, introduced this fall of just labeling the experience. So when you find yourself pulled off the body breathing and you realize you're hearing sounds, you could just simply note hearing, hearing, sounds are being known. And you can stay with the field, the, the presentation of sounds for as long as they're there. Um, but if the sounds diminish or change and disappear or fade off, then you can return to the, the whole body breathing with the comfortable breath as a, as a base. And then if you wake up and you realize, oh, hey, I've been thinking about dinner. I've been thinking about the talk. I've been thinking about something that I'm not even sure what I've been thinking about. Thinking, thinking, thoughts are being known. So you can use that, this labeling phrase, whatever the object is, whether it's sounds, hearing, hearing, or for thoughts, thinking, thinking, you're, you're recognizing this is what's occurring and it's being known by the awareness. And, and so that's the, the essence of one style of practice. And, And if we have more time next week, I'll, I'll say more about what, I'm doing here in terms of um, blending a few different styles of Vipassana. But with the breathing practice, I'm combining, I'm using, drawing from a style from Thailand uh, that Tanisra Biko taught. And with the labeling practice, I'm borrowing some tools from the Burmese approach to Vipassana. And I think bringing them together, A, softens the harshness of each of them. You don't get too tight with either one. But the main thing is that, particularly from the working with the breath this way, you'll become sensitive to cause and effect in your experience. So this is, we could call this the, the karma of play lab. I want you to play with your breath as we meditate now. And play, play with it in a way that you experiment with. Let me try breathing this way. Let me try breathing that way. What kind of breath feels good? And it's not, and you might set that up for a little while and breathe in a particular way that feels good for a minute or so. And then you might find that that manner of breath that you begin with after some time starts to feel a little bit labored or it feels a bit burdensome or it feels like you're squeezing the exhalations or lengthening and, and, and there's tension in the inhalation. If you feel tension, if you feel uh, like you're getting agitated, you need to adjust how you're breathing. Sometimes a little bit more will be helpful. Sometimes a little bit less was going to be helpful. This is the, the sensitivity to your experience that's here right now that you start to develop. Now, this is, I'll be, I'll be saying more about this in, at another time, but working with the breath this way is, in a sense, an, a, a discrete exercise to become sensitive to this nature of the dynamic, which is present experience, input that you're bringing to the present experience, and then the results of that input, the results of that present moment action, both in terms of how you feel in the now and how it develops into the future. It's like a microcosm of the karmic dynamic. In becoming sensitive to it in practice, it's a, it becomes a sensibility 
yes, I've been reading a little bit of Jane Austen lately too, <laughs> but it becomes a sensibility that broadens and transposes to this way you see dynamics at large. It's not just about the breath. The breath is a little exercise where you see the mechanisms of karma at play. And then that starts to broaden and open into a view of everything in, in your life. And then if you're lucky, you'll be able to string a string of Christmas lights up and have the, <laughs> the, the, the plug or the, the, the plug just land right by the socket with one go. Okay, so those are my reflections for this evening. Let's come to a sitting. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the show today. I hope you enjoyed this talk. I hope some of the reflections around karma and breath work uh, infuse your practice with some curiosity, interest, and exploration, and that these themes really start to uh, come alive for you in your own practice. Once again, if you'd like to practice with us in an ongoing way, if you'd like to join me and Terry in the Riverbird Sangha, please head over to my website, joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. And there you will see our tiered membership and all you need to know about how to register and participate with us in our online practice community. Uh, so we look forward to practicing with you and we wish you all the best. Until next episode, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I'll look forward to seeing you soon. Take good care.